My name is Chris. I'm one of the, I'm the, one of the teachers here at Moran Park. Uh, good morning uh, to you. It's quite great to see you. We continue this uh, morning our series in the Sermon uh, on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we started this back in September and we'll continue just to kind of walk through the Gospel of Matthew, um, taking each text as they come. And right now we're in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this, this, this block of uh, the first block of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew that runs from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. It's, uh, it's the famous sermon, as, you, uh, as it's called. And we're just taking the next text. And the next text is the second of six antitheses. The second of six antitheses. What's a, that's a fancy word. An antithesis is just as for Jesus' hey, you've heard it this way, but I'm telling you this. Or um, as Jesus says that you have heard it said, but I tell you, uh, this. Last week we looked at anger. Jesus says, you heard it said that it was said to the ancients, uh, you shall not murder. But I tell you, don't even get angry uh, with your brother or your sister. Um, before we look at our text proper this morning, which is uh, just four verses, I want to just say, let's put this really very quickly, take a step back and place this text into the epic story of Scripture. Well, there's basically two kingdoms, right? There's uh, God in the, in the beginning creating the world for his glory, creating us as his image bearers, and creating us to flood the world as his image bearers with, with his glory, with his love, uh, and to rule the world on his behalf. Heaven and earth would intersect, God would dwell with his people, and all would be joy, uh, pleasure, and happiness. But we, we destroyed that. We broke that. We, we rebelled against our king. We, Adam and Eve rebelled against uh, God and plunged the world into destruction, sin and death. And now humanity's estrangement and enmity with God. <clears throat> but God, God's plan is still plan A. God is going to find a way, despite our human rebellion, to flood the earth with his glory, to live with us forever, and for us to um, enjoy a transformed, resurrected, renewed creation where we will live and dwell and enjoy and reflect him forever in unceasing ages of increasing enjoyment of his glory um, and delight. There are those two kingdoms that this fallen world and the age to come, that, that new creation. There was this old, broken, fallen creation. And that world, that's to come. And in that world to come, let me just put, we're putting the, our text today into its context. In the world to come, there is no unfaithfulness. There is no unfaithfulness. And anything and everything that is marked by unfaithfulness stops on a given day, that last great day, and will not pass through into that new world, that renewed world that God promises for those who love him. So as we think about Jesus now, and in this text where he says he's, he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, He's the one that's bringing all those ancient promises of the Old Testament to its fulfillment. He's the one in whom this dawning new world has come and is being launched. That kingdom where 
the age to come is being brought forth into, into this world and is invading it. I'm going to swallow up death. Jesus is saying, I am that king, and I am the one that's bringing that kingdom. I'm bringing that age to come. I'm bringing that new world. And as I bring that new world, I have to tell you, my people, that unfaithfulness, there's going to be none of that there. And so you need to begin to live now because I'm bringing the new kingdom now in my own person. It's dawning in me and you, my disciples, you who are going to inhabit that new world, that renewed world. You need to begin to live out that world now in the present. You need to live like those new creation people now in the midst of the old world. You need to live out the kingdom now, that future kingdom now in the present because I've, I've, it's dawning in me. So that's like Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4, right? And now we're in his teaching. How, what does what is new creation living, what does is, what is kingdom living look like uh, in the present for, his, for those who claim to follow Jesus? And so that's just kind of give you the big picture of where these four verses fit because otherwise they just kind of, kind of hit you and they're blunt and they sting um, or it feels judgy, um, but we have to put them into our, into our context and what's going on in the larger epic story of Scripture. Okay, so you with me? Uh, if you have no idea what I'm talking about with new creation, come see me uh, afterwards and we can talk. I'd love to talk to you. Okay, Matthew 5 is our text this morning. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Max putting those on the screen for me. Let's go ahead and read this uh, together. Jesus says this, second antithesis. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye therefore causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Tough text, right? What I want to do is I want to walk you through, I want to walk us through the text. Just the four verses, five verses here. Then I want to discuss what um, coveting actually is. I want to talk a little bit about why does someone commit adultery and then just emphasize some forgiveness and hope with some including applications. So that's kind of where we're, where we're going. Let's go ahead and first walk. Now just take a walk through the text a minute. See how the text relates uh, one to another, these verses. So let's go to verse 27 where Jesus quotes the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament um, from the Old Testament law here. So let's go ahead and throw verse uh, Matthew 5, 27 up there. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Um, this is an exact quotation of the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? They're not just bare rules. Um, in the Old Testament that anybody that has to, like, please God has to obey. We've got to put them in their context. There's actually 613 rules in the Old Testament. 615 rules, if you will, 
that are covenant principles that Israel has to live, are to live by, that guide. They're for Israel in the Old Testament. They're for the people of God in the Old Testament. They're not rules for everybody. They were for Israel in particular in their covenant relationship with God. And it was these 613 rules that were going to help to shape what faithfulness, what love to God looked like. What does love to God look like? Um, and these 613 are boiled down into 10 in a big summary called what we call the 10 commandments. Uh, actually, the 10 words, literally, the 10 words of response to what God has done for them. You don't, even in the Old Testament, you don't do these rules to, to earn God's favor. God has come and saved Israel, um, delivered them, and, now this, and made them his covenant special people. And now this is how they are to respond. They're to respond with a life of love to God. So that's that is played out in these 613, which is then boiled down to these Ten Commandments. The first, the first half of them are vertical commandments. You know, no, no idols. Uh, don't make any um, worship. No other gods besides me. And then the other half of the of the of the of the Ten Commandments are uh, horizontal. You know, don't steal. Uh, don't murder. Don't um, don't commit adultery. And so, and then Jesus, of course. <clears throat> We'll boil those 10 down, those 613, those 10 down to two, right? Love God, love your neighbor. Um, there's actually more commandments in the, don't think that it's like the Old Testament's full of rules and we get relationship with the New Testament. There's also rules in the New Testament that we need to follow. Um, there's actually more rules in the New Testament than there are in the Old Testament, but I digress. <clears throat> but it is about relationship the whole, the whole way through. It's like you have to have a relationship. If you're going to have a good relationship with your, with your spouse, you have some rules in place. Not having another person in the, in the relationship is one of those rules that you keep in order that the relationship can flourish. So the rules are there not to be arbitrary, but they are guardrails that enable the, the relationship to flourish, if that makes sense. So those rules in the Old Testament, God's covenant marriage relationship with his people, those rules are in place so that the relationship can flourish. God gives us, uh, you shall not commit adultery for our marriages so that our marriages can flourish and so that our relationship with him can flourish. Rules aren't necessarily bad things unless you make them the point. What is adultery? Adultery is consensual sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than that person's current spouse or partner. I think that's fairly, fairly clear, but if we didn't know what that was, that's what we're talking about. Like last week with murder, we see here that the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament is the death penalty. What? Yes, the death penalty. Uh, Leviticus, Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Death penalty for such, a, for such a serious sin. I think we'll come back to that. Why is the punishment so severe? Come back to that in just a moment. But I just want to put that out, that the punishment for such sin is death. The wages of sin is death um, when you commit treason against the, the high king. Uh, the creator king of the world. Or Proverbs 6.32 kind of makes us, the point just a little bit different. Proverbs 6.32, he who commits 
adultery, and women can commit adultery as well. Everything I'm saying is applicable to women as well. Women can lust, women can covet, women can commit adultery. So kind of place yourself in there. Um, generic he here. He or she who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself or possibly is destroyed. So obviously it's a terrible, a terrible sin. Okay, well, we've got the point. Move on to 5, 528. Matthew 5.28. Jesus interprets the seventh commandment by the tenth commandment. Adultery is a matter actually of the heart. Let's go ahead and read this. Verse 28. But I say to you, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me translate it with a slightly different translation here. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman and covets her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoever looks at a man covets him. Whoever looks at a woman and covets her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice that the sin here originates in the heart, just like anger last week. Right? Murder, right? Well, at least I've never murdered anybody. I must be a pretty good person. I'm not, I'm not as bad as that guy who murdered somebody. And Jesus says, have you ever murdered them in your heart? In principle, that's just as bad as actually doing the deed, he says. And the same here is true with adultery. Well, actually, I've never actually committed adultery. I'm good. Have you ever committed adultery with somebody here? In principle, Jesus says, that's just as culpable as actually committing adultery literally. It's a matter of the heart and what goes on here. You see, Jesus is trying, Matthew's gospel is trying to say to Christian believers, you are the people of God. Not, these, not the Jews, not the Pharisees who are, are rejecting Jesus and want nothing to do with him, who are the Pharisees, right, who are checking the boxes. Now, outwardly, they look religious, but inwardly, they're dead man's bones, right? I don't want you to be like the Pharisees, he says. They can check the boxes. Never committed adultery. I'm good. God loves me. I'm cool. Never murdered anybody. Pretty proud of myself. Doing good. Jesus says, I can see into your heart. Outwardly you look fantastic, but inwardly you're a Pharisee. You need me. And Jesus is saying, I'm creating a faithful people for myself who not just check the boxes religiously, but actually from spirit-wrought, new covenant, genuine New heart pulsing with life. People who actually don't commit lust in their heart. But actually do faithfully love other people. Who actually do faithfully love their spouses from their heart. And are faithful to them. And faithful to God. Remember, 
that new creation, that new world that's coming. No unfaithfulness there. And God's kingdom people need to begin to live out those realities in the here and now, he's saying. About dropped my coffee mug with its coffee when I read this text and saw that the word here for is translated by the ESV. Max, can you put that back up? Matthew 5, 28. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Yeah. Is the exact same word for the 10th commandment. Thou shall not covet. And it's even the same word for the, for the woman. How about drop my dentures? I was like, what? What? He's interpreting commandment number seven with commandment number ten. Well, let's read commandment number ten. Let's read the second half of the Ten Commandments. I'm starting with Exodus 20, um, Max Exodus 20, verses 14 to 17. Uh, verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. There's our text for this morning. You shall not steal, verse 15. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, verse 16. That's the ninth commandment. And then verse 17, you shall not covet, epithumeo, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's, his car, his, his belongings, his Maserati, his Lamborghini, his, his reputation, his career, her job, her spouse. Don't covet it. The Ten Commandments themselves teach that the heart is the issue. Don't covet these things. Jesus isn't even, Jesus is not intensifying the law here. He's not saying, well, the law got it partially, the Old Testament got it partially right, but I'm going to tell you this is a deeper way, this is the more profound way. The Old Testament itself teaches this. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman and covets her, verse 28, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Interpreting verse 7, you shall not commit adultery. With verse uh, 17 of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. We'll come back to that. I want to talk a little bit about coveting. What, what I want to say just here is adultery is just an ex, a specific example of the, of the broader issue of coveting. Adultery is just a spe, one specific example of wanting something that God has said to you is forbidden. Okay? Come back to that. Matthew 5. Let's just finish our text now. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. If this is true, if adultery is of the heart and not just like a, a religious um, rule that I need to keep outwardly, but is actually Jesus sees inside and the Lord sees inside, what am I to do? Like, what, what action steps should we take? Let's go ahead and read this. And I would, I would preface this by saying, therefore, Jesus is giving, therefore, the action step that you should take when it's this serious and adultery starts here. 
Verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Are we to take Jesus literally here? Are we to like pull out our right eye and chop off our right hand? Does that get to the problem, to the heart of the issue? What's the issue? Is it the, it's the heart, right? Jesus is using hyperbole. Jesus is using rhetorical exaggeration to make a point. It gets your attention, right? What? Pluck up? Pluck it out? Whoa. That, that's pretty violent. That's pretty gruesome. It gets your attention. It gets your attention. Uh, there was a church father that did, in fact, uh, take this uh, text, unfortunately, literally, literally. At least the story goes. I think it's possible apocryphal, but Oregon, Origen was a church father that uh, was um, understood to have taken this a little too far and took this literally. But that still doesn't solve the problem because you still have what? You still have your left eye and your left hand. <laughs> So don't make that error. The point is, the problem is, is the heart. And the problem is, we have to take violent, aggressive action to rid ourselves, to do whatever it takes, to not put ourselves in positions of heart adultery. Be killing sin. Max, do you have that slide? Kill sin. Be killing sin before sin kills you. Do whatever it takes. you got to cut off your right hand to get it done. You do that because that world, there is no unfaithfulness. And if unfaithfulness marks you, Jesus is saying, if you are characterized by unfaithfulness, if this is, if this is you, if that's your heart posture, if that's who you are, You cannot pass through to that world because there is going to be no adultery, unfaithfulness in that day. Kill sin before sin kills you. He does threaten here final judgment, does he not? The whole tenor of the New Testament is marked by this reality that a final judgment is coming, that there's going to be a day where God sets the whole world to rights. All wrongs will be made right. Everybody will stand before the throne and give an account for themselves. Before the just God who searches minds and hearts and knows everything about us. I would do you an extreme disservice if I did not point that out and mention that as a part of the text. Come back to that in a moment. How do you pass through safely from this world to that world if we're marked by unfaithfulness? 
What's the door? What's the escape? What's the, what's the deliverance? How do, you get, how do you get through? Give me just one moment. We'll get back to that. What does it mean to covet? I want to come back to that. Jesus has just defined adultery as coveting. What is coveting something? To covet is to want something that God has said is forbidden to you. Is to want something that God has said no to. Your little girl or your little boy, you've told them they you can't have a cookie before dinner. They've ruined their dinner before, and you have said no. <laughs> and you walk out of the kitchen for a moment, and dinner's on the stovetop. <clears throat> You've also told them not to touch the stovetop. So mom's out of the, mom leaves for just a moment. Kid goes to the cookie jar, right, going and doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. And then goes over to the stovetop, about burns her hand off um, because they touch the stovetop. And mom comes in just in the nick of time and rescues uh, the kiddo, and then gives the child some discipline for the open cookie jar that uh, is the evidence that uh, there has been a, a crime committed. <clears throat> God has said no to things for our good. There are things that he has said no to because he loves us. And to say that you want that, even though he said no to it, is not to trust him. Not to trust that he is good. Not to trust that he's, he's better than you. That he's wiser than you. That he loves you. That he knows what's best for you. Coveting throws that all aside and says, I don't care. I want what I want. I know better what's best for me. You can't tell me what to do. I know what's going to make me happy. You don't. You're a tyrant. You don't actually believe. You don't actually want what's best for me. You don't actually know what's best for me. You don't actually love me. You're hiding. You're you're hiding things from me. You're you're with you're with you're um, withdrawing. You're withholding things from me. That's the posture of coveting. That's what coveting is. It's that posture. It's putting yourself in place of God and saying, you know better than God. I know better than God. So that's what coveting is. It makes yourself out to be God, to say, I know better than you what's best for me, and to make the rules. And so you become God's rival and God's enemy. And God brokers no rivals. You've made yourself out to be God instead of creature that's utterly dependent upon God. So I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I don't. I'm not thinking about all that when I actually am desiring something I shouldn't have. But that's what's behind the desire. Is that posture? And it's serious business to make yourself God when there actually is a God. And he brooks no rivals because there is no rivals. There's no competition. We're a creature, dependent, need him. He's not dependent on us. It is deadly serious business to fall into the hands of the living God. 
So adultery is just a specific example of the broader concept of coveting. And coveting is making ourselves out to be God rather than trusting God to be God and to trust him that he knows what's best for us. Why do people commit adultery? <clears throat> or commit the sin of adultery in the heart? <clears throat> you just said, Chris, it's coveting. You just, you just answered that. You said they covet, they want something that they can't actually have, and then they act on it, or they, yeah. That's true. It is. I don't think people wake up one morning and say, today's a beautiful day. I think I'll commit adultery today. I don't think that's how it happens. How do we, how does somebody get there, right? Well, the answer is we live in a fallen world and we're exiled from Eden, created to be ravished by the glory of the triune God. We find ourselves stumbling through this fallen world, this broken world, estranged from him in our rebellion, this barren wilderness, cut off from him, his life, his goodness, his love, his truth. And so we stumble separated from the one who can satisfy us with what? The grave awaiting us at the end of our miserable journey as our certain destiny. And we find ourselves, therefore, restless. Every single one of us is restless. There's a, there's a gnawing, there's a gnawing ache And we're always seeking for the next thing that will satisfy that ache. Always. Incessantly. Restless. And so I think what happens is that adultery eventually happens out of that restlessness. Right? That gnawing ache that will never be satisfied no matter what you throw at it. No matter how much you throw yourself into a career, no matter how much you buy the next flashy bauble that our, our advertising, our marketing, right, on our TVs and our internet and our social media just taps right into this, like, you can like sell anything you want if you can tap into this restlessness. If you just have my product, our product, that gnawing restlessness will be taken care of, right? 1995, three months installments. And we purchase it and then it doesn't work and then we're on to the next thing, right? This, this, this restlessness that can only be satisfied in God. So I just think adultery happens when you're in your marriage 
and you find out your marriage partner isn't actually perfect like you thought they were, and then there's difficulties, or you find yourself arguing all the time, and you can't get it right, and work is hard, and you come home exhausted, and you're, then there's kids, and she's exhausted trying to raise the toddlers, and then there's a vulnerable moment where you go on three weeks of business travel, right? I think it kind of happens like that. Nobody, nobody goes, wakes up and says, I'm going to do that today. And the consequences are destruction. You can go on to the next person if you want, but they're not going to satisfy the next lover. And what you've left is just this wake of destruction behind, behind us. Destroying your marriage, destroying your family, destroying your kids, destroying your finances, destroying your reputation. And yet the restlessness still is there even after all that. Where are you going to satisfy that? And Jesus is saying, I am the only one who can satisfy that. I am the only one who can provide rest for your souls. Adultery is really, at the end of the day, just evidence that in a vulnerable moment you weren't resting in Jesus. At the end of the day, all sins... All sin is outward expression of not resting in Jesus, trying to find our satisfaction, trying to cure that aching gnaw that is killing us with anything else other than him. All right. I don't want to end there. I want to end on a note of hope and encouragement. Jesus loves you, and there is forgiveness, and there is so much hope. We have to realize we are restless sinners and that we need a Savior. We need somebody to carry us through that final day into that new world, that renewed world that Jesus has promised. And he is saying, I am that way. I am that way. If you'll come to me, we're all sinners. It doesn't actually matter if your specific sin is adultery or not at the end of the day. We've all sinned, and if we confess our sins, 1 John, 1 John 1, 9, if we come to him and we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive us. Meaning that on that day, guess what he's going to be, what's, what's the verdict going to be? He's one of mine. She's one of mine. I got him. Pass on through. Forgiven. What? How? The wages of sin is death. The wages of adultery is death. How? I have to pay that. How am I supposed to pay that? How am I going to get through? Jesus says, I took that for you. I died for you in your place. I did it because I love you. And because in my joy, so that you could be with me forever there, I died for you as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Me for you. So that you could be forgiven for anything that you've done. Anything that you've done. Even adultery. 
even adultery. And that you could be with me forever. What if I'm what if I've committed adultery with a woman in my in my heart, Jesus? What about that one? Even that. Confess that. Come before me. Let my forgiveness wash over you. Come be with me. Look at how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6 9. 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 11. This is the, you were people that belong, this is the text, but I'm going to just, we'll read it in a second. You were people that belong to this age, but now you are the people that belong to this age, this world. Verse 6, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that's everybody, the unrighteous. Nobody's going to inherit that, right? Because nothing's going to pass through that's unrighteous. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, there it is again, nor people who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11, And such were some of you. Past tense. But you were, say it, washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That was what you were before Jesus. But now that you have Jesus, who are you? You are the washed. You've been cleansed. You're white as snow in Jesus. What does it mean to be justified? It means there's no condemnation. You've been declared just. You've been declared to be in the right. There is on that final day when the judge takes his throne and he looks over you, he's going to look at you in Jesus and say, what am I? Righteous, justified, not guilty, no condemnation. What? Or well, what does it mean for you to be the sanctified? means that you're going to be made, you've been, set, you've been set apart as holy, as special to God for God's purposes, been made his child, made holy, declared holy, and someday will be perfectly holy. Perfect. My people will be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus says. Or be perfect because you will be perfect someday because my cleansing work, my justifying work, my, my sanctifying work, in you will be so complete you will pass through and be with me forever. That's a miracle of grace. Grace. That is who you are. You're not, if you're in Jesus, blank. Whatever your sin is, that is not your identity. I'm not making this stuff up. I do believe that's what my text says. You are the washed. You are the justified. You are the sanctified people of God in Christ by the Spirit of God. That is who you are. 
And so Jesus is saying, begin to live that out now. Because that's not who you are. This is who you are. You're not old creation people. You're new creation people. Live that out and shine my light and tell others about me. going to call up our prayer team and uh, our discernment seats. Um, the prayer team is up here. Just if you need prayer, want prayer, something, something stirring in you, maybe you, you want to intercede for somebody that you know is stuck in sin or you know there's somebody that needs Jesus. Um, prayer on your own is really important, but there's something that happens that's special when you pray with others for that person. Or maybe you need prayer for yourself. That's fine too. You come. That's here available for you. And then our discernment seats with Jack and Kathy up here this morning. If the Lord has stirred something in you that you want to share and you believe it might be for the rest of us to hear something important that the rest of us need to hear, come on up and talk with them. Pass that by them. And they can then discern whether that's for the rest, rest of us, the rest of us to hear. Remember, the Holy Spirit is at work in all of us and has made us all his witnesses. So come on up and give a good testimony. Or maybe you just want to share what the Lord's done in your life. And you want to you have a testimony that you want to share of how his goodness, you just can't keep it in. You got you got something that he's done in you or done for you, or something you've seen him do in somebody else this week. Come on up and share that and bless the rest of us. Uh, so come up and see Kathy and Jack. Sammy, I think you have another song for us. Um, let's worship the Lord. Let's celebrate his goodness and his forgiveness and his making us the washed. Let's worship. Mm -hmm.